there. Thank you for connecting with me and subscribing to the Living the Sky Life podcast. I hope that the content of each episode brings you hope, connection, and some valuable takeaways. The Special Needs Parenting Village is large, so you should never feel like you have to travel this journey alone. Please connect with me through my website, Facebook page, or Instagram account, and let's keep this conversation going after each episode airs. If you are enjoying the podcast and are listening on Apple iTunes, please leave a rating and review or share Living the Sky Life with others. Thanks again for tuning in to season two of Living the Sky Life. Welcome back to Living the Sky Life. Today's episode features a new friend of mine who has been wonderful as far as giving me advice um, on Skylar and using AAC devices and pretty much all the things uh, because her son is a year older than Skylar. My guest is Krista Gold. Krista is the mother to Alex, age 19, who is diagnosed with autism, and her daughter Anna is 17, who is neurotypical. In her previous life before kids, she earned a bachelor's and master's degree in accounting from the University of Wisconsin-Madison and worked in public accounting for 11 years. Since then, Krista has spent her time raising two wonderful kids and enjoys sharing all types of information about her family's autism journey with others while also learning from the many parents in the world of special needs. Please enjoy my conversation with Krista. So today's guest on Living the Sky Life is my new friend, Krista Gold, coming from Wisconsin. So Krista, nice to have you today. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Wonderful. Well, we met um, on a Zoom call that we all started doing almost, gosh, it's probably almost been a year ago that we started the um the Zoom calls for parents with children that are not really children anymore. <laughs> They're That's getting into nice. the young adult <laughs> stages. And um, you and I have so much in common, um, not just with our boys, but our daughters are close in age, um, neurotypical daughters. So I, I was drawn to you immediately. So I'm yep, so excited. I felt the same way. It's really uh, nice, obviously, to have connections in general. And this was a really good connection. I, felt I know it right it's away so too. great because you still yep. feel alone, even when your kids aren't little. It's it, I think it gets yeah. worse. At least it felt like for me, it got more isolating when Skylar was in his teen years and getting older. Yeah, so. some things get easier and some things get harder. I'll be <laughs> honest. There's there's definitely some of both. <laughs> yep, new experiences every day. <laughs> well, I um since uh, we're talking about your son Alex and um that he's 19. So can we go back a little bit about your journey from diagnosis to now? I mean, obviously it's been a number of years and we don't have to go into all the details from sure. birth to now, but um, you know, did he present in any uh, developmental delays or, or how did you kind of come to ask about an autism diagnosis from autism. doctors? Boy, it has been a journey as all of us know, long road. Um, Alex was diagnosed at just shy of three, so about two months before his third birthday. We had some ideas prior to that because he was not talking. Um, that was really the main thing was the communication that was really missing or different. And as a lot of people always say, if it's your firstborn, you don't have a lot of frame of reference. You don't have the way to say, well, this is how my other children were. This is how he should be. So there was, really wasn't that. And mm -hmm. um, I really only our way to figure all this out was that certainly by 18 months or so, he had no words. Um, he wasn't pointing. It was kind of some of the stereotypical um, communications, social pieces that were missing in his development. But prior to that, all of my knowledge of what he should be developing like was consistent with what he was doing. He sat up, he walked, he did all the rolling over, all of the typical baby kind of milestones, except for language seemed fine. Um, but in, in retrospect, obviously, when you look back, he was a very repetitive baby. He liked to do a lot of the same things over and over. He had a few toys that he really, really, really liked. And then some that he paid no attention to anything basically related to pretend play, which, of course, now knowing what I know now, that was probably a red flag for autism or some sort of developmental disability to begin with, but he was very repetitive. He liked certain sounds, certain motions. Um, he liked opening and closing doors. So as a baby, those were the things that looking back were obvious now that that was probably autism in its very early form showing itself to us before he was able to, or even supposed to be communicating very much yet. 
And then we had him evaluated the first, we were actually living in Rochester, Minnesota at the time. So we were at fortunate enough to have the Mayo Clinic right there with us. Mm -hmm. And he had supposedly the best of the best evaluating him for things like hearing. Uh, we had genetic testing done. All kinds of providers and people were evaluating him for all kinds of different things. And bottom line is everything came up normal, which of course is good. But then you're left with, okay, this is probably something more kind of global, more autism, developmental delay, something along those lines. And then we got into the full formal evaluation shortly after that, which took several months because in a big facility like that, they want to make you, for better or for worse, they want to make sure you see everybody and hear everything and do everything that you possibly can to get the right diagnosis. So that was right before he was three. Did you guys, um, do you have... I guess you were in Minnesota, not Wisconsin at the time, but do they have state therapy programs where it's like age zero to three that the state comes in and does speech or yes. what, whatever yes. you need? Absolutely. Were you guys able they to do that or did you kind of we hit, did. hit the cusp of that? We did just a little bit because he had already been evaluated for um, speech delay. So he was receiving speech services uh, before, I forget what time frame that was, probably around right around two Mm -hmm. is when we were able to start doing that. It was pretty limited a couple times a week. Basically, somebody would come to our house. She was obviously trained. I remember her and I liked her. Um, but she basically would just kind of come and play with him for a little while. And uh, not much else came out of that other than <laughs> him getting a, an adult playmate for a few times. So I wouldn't say that he was getting really formalized therapy until um, after three. And then he entered the school system and started ABA at that point. Did he go to a traditional elementary school and preschool or did he go to a special program? Well, we kind of took, we, we did both. I thought that um, at the time there really wasn't a clear answer. Like mm -hmm. all of us, we kind of struggle with, and I see it all the time on Coops Troops and other places that you have parents of newly diagnosed children trying to figure out, okay, should I do ABA? I hear good things about it. I hear not good things about it. The schools, of course, it depends on the system, your district you're in. And we were in a pretty good district. Rochester at the time had good services, special ed services, even for little kids. And we also were fortunate enough to have a nice, fairly new ABA center that had recently opened in town. So I thought we should probably take advantage of both. And we did. Mm -hmm. So as a three, four and five-year-old, then he actually did a combination of public school and ABA probably about 40 hours a week total, but it was a split between the two programs. Yeah. And I remember too, um, Sky, I think ABA kind of came into my vocabulary. I think when he was around two to three, we already knew he had autism, but he wasn't officially diagnosed until three. But back then, um, I mean, it was kind of like digging deep to find somebody that had heard of it and that understood it. And a, a woman came to our house and, um, she trained us kind of, I mean, they said you needed 40 hours a week in your home in addition yeah. to preschool and everything else. And I just, I remember being overwhelmed then thinking, how oh, yeah. are we going to swing this? It's so expensive and it's out of pocket and we don't have that well, many hours in the day. He's only <laughs> so, three. So, I mean, mm -hmm. imagine saying, okay, here's my three-year-old. He's ready to go to work 40 hours a week. Yeah. Cause that's essentially what ABA is for, um, for kids. It's, it's that it's work. I mean, it's fun and the providers make it fun, but they, um, they really have a lot of work for them in ABA and that's, that's the bottom line, but we were pretty happy with the services and he did well. I wouldn't say he made huge, you know, groundbreaking kind of gains, but he liked it. He enjoyed mm -hmm. going and they worked on things that I believe both at school and at ABA that were relevant to him and still are. I, I wish he could get more ABA. No, I know Skylar still does, correct? Mm -hmm. Because that's, Skylar still gets ABA services, correct? That's all he does. Yeah. There yeah. just isn't any uh, high schools that have a program for him because he needs mm -hmm. so much one-on-one -on -one every day. They don't have the staff for that. So a special yeah. needs classroom just doesn't, it's not feasible for us. Yeah. And I know we're going to talk about this in a little while, probably too, but Alex is fortunate enough to have enough one-on-one -on -one time at school. So I don't worry like that. I, I mm -hmm. wouldn't be, it's, it's really nice. Uh, when we get to talking about that, I'll, I'll explain a little bit more, but uh, back to when he was preschool type age, he really was fortunate enough to have the a good service level at that point too. 
Yeah, well, that's good. I mean, so I, I mean, we can go right into that. As far as schooling goes, I mean, that was my challenge too. I always put Skylar in age appropriate. He went to um, a traditional preschool at an elementary program or whatever. And then he went to elementary school until he was seven in like a special education classroom. The only reason actually that I lifted him from there was because um, it was out of district for us. There wasn't a special needs classroom in the district that, that we lived in. And mm -hmm. then they became overcrowded in that special ed classroom. I mean, the teacher was phenomenal with Skylar. I loved her, but because we were out of district, we were the ones that had to had to go. And right. then the new program in the district we were in, they had just started it like the summer before he was supposed to go. And I okay. just trusted my gut. I just, I don't want him to be a guinea pig ever in any right. programs if I can help it. And I just- it's so kind of, hard. Yeah, I just prayed about it and I um, actually stumbled upon an ABA center that we ended up going to for, gosh, probably seven years he went to that facility. So it worked out okay. But with Alex, did he just tra transition into from elementary school to middle school, middle school to high school with the, you know, the, the traditional education path? Well, it was a little interesting because at the same time we were doing all of the sort of diagnosis and figuring out what was the best programming for him. We were also moving a number of times. My husband is a physician. So he was finishing residency, doing another short residency and then getting a job. So we yeah. moved probably five times before Alex was seven. <laughs> you got to take and those when they come, those residencies, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. So it was a challenge at the time, but we, um, we had to move him around, move Alex around too, between programs and locations. So by the time we ended up back for or back where we, finally, where we live now, which is um, a town in Western Wisconsin, he was first grade and we entered the school system for good at that point and did some ABA on the side. But from that point forward, he was uh, pretty much full-time in the school system. And prior to that, it was kind of hopping around from program to program after we left Rochester, hit two more cities on the way to landing <laughs> where we are now. <laughs> but he... he and from that point on, he pretty much followed the, all the way up through elementary school. And then I'll diverge or div digress a little bit and talk about middle school probably, probably in a minute, but all the way through elementary school, he pretty much followed what most people would consider the traditional path um, through the grades. He had an autism program that he was in within our elementary school, but that's neat. Um, but for the most part, he also spent some time in the regular classroom inclusion, but then inclusion got a lot harder the older he got. So that is another observation I would have. And um, probably other parents in our similar situations would have felt the same way. It's way easier to include by traditional inclusion standards, a kindergartner than it is a fifth grader. Because mm -hmm. certainly he's not. Alex also has, I would say, a, probably a pretty severe, moderate to severe intellectual disability. Yeah, It's hard Skylar to tell when someone is nonverbal what they understand and how capable they are of grasping concepts like U.S. history and, you know, physical science. I mean, all the stuff that kids start to learn in the upper elementary grades that, that I don't think he was understanding or getting anything out of by that point. Um, and certainly kindergarten when you're still focused on numbers and letters and shapes and sitting in circle time and all those sorts of things were way easier. And I was very happy with all of that. But then as elementary school progressed, a lot of that gets a lot harder. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and anybody who's been through elementary or any grades probably with a severe end of spectrum nonverbal child probably can appreciate most of that, that it's, it's, it's challenging. You think, boy, my kid ought to be in there with all the other kids, he or she ought to be included and doing everything that the typical kids are doing, but it gets very hard and behaviors get in the way. Um, Alex has a very short attention span, he always mm -hmm. has. He's never actually been evaluated for ADHD, ADD, any of them, those things. But certainly I think if we could separate out those types of things for him, he probably does have that too. We did try a few meds that were in those categories and those groups with very little or zero success. Mm -hmm. so the bottom line is what it meant for elementary school was that he was very hard to have in a typical classroom for very long other than the standard types of things like recess and lunch and snack and PE and the things that are easier to include a growing autistic child in without a lot of disruption to the, to the other kids. 
so with that said, I was actually pretty happy with most of his elementary experiences. We had a lot of teacher turnover, but that had nothing to do with Alex. He pretty much made it up to fifth grade positively through all of his programming and remained nonverbal. Um, so that was one of the things that was, I guess, probably the most discouraging over the years, just because you, boy, and people tell you, oh, my child didn't start talking until 10 and my child. <laughs> They're still telling yeah, me I that. Know, my, 18, <laughs> 20. <laughs> If you're a positive, hopeful person like I am, you say, boy, um, I'd like to believe that he'll have words, that there will be something that he will be able to say if it's mom, if it's help, if it's anything that, that, but he didn't. And I've made peace with that a long time ago. And late elementary school is also when we got introduced to, actually she was, uh, his speech therapist through school was with us all of those years, but she at that point was getting herself um, trained on how to implement um, speech devices, or I know you have that as a, a topic for us to discuss today too, which I love to talk about alternative, augmentative alternative communication, also known as AAC. She trialed him on the, the very first iPad, the iPad one. I don't even remember, remember if that's what they called it back then, but at that point, I think I just called it an iPad and it was crazy and new and we bought one and she helped us install Proloquo to go, which is his speech program that he still uses. And kind of the rest is history because that was probably the single most um, influential person and point in his communication life was starting up with an iPad back in, I don't remember if, I think it was fourth grade, about the middle of fourth grade for Alex. So I think he was nine and um, he took to it right away. He never ever took to sign language middle, a little bit of pecs, but it was pretty limiting, um, mm -hmm. at least for him. We couldn't get him to do much beyond basic just requesting and pecs has a lot of limitations. So as much as we say all of those were really good attempts that we all made, nothing clicked. He really had no real functional communication until we started up with an iPad. How long so that was probably the oh, single sorry. thing out of element, the, the single thing out of elementary school that I would point to more than anything as, as influential and important in his life. I was just gonna ask, how long did it take from when you first started in AAC to getting him to understand, you know, if I press these buttons and if I do this, then it, you know, just to make the connection between using that to communicate um, instead of his voice and, um, you know, how fluent is he now with that and frequently yeah. using it? You know, I. <laughs> Like a lot of things in life, my memory fails me all the way back to <laughs> that point. But I do remember, I think it was fairly quickly that he made the connection that this is this is helpful to me. This is my voice. Mm -hmm. This is something that is going to help me get, you know, kids are, are kids, whether they have autism or not, they think about themselves. And, you know, my daughter's the same way, especially back around that age, they really are focused on themselves. And what he was getting out of the iPad almost immediately was not possible right now. Somebody will probably bring me a cracker. And he figured that out immediately. And we started real simple, like things like that, crackers. And I need the bathroom. That was one of the main things. We wanted to make it functional right from the start. So he almost immediately learned things like that, food items, and then toys. He never was a big, like I've said before, a playing with toys kid, but there were a few things that he really liked and things that he kind of stems on or really gets excited about that we've incorporated in as communication options and requesting. Because I think most speech therapists still tell you, I, I don't keep up with all of it, but start with things like requesting to get the child used to and wanting to use the device. If you're trying to get them to talk about the weather in circle time or something, they're less inclined to want to do it because they most of the time don't care if it's sunny or cloudy outside like, mm -hmm. like we do. Um, so they really, we started off real simple with them and it just kind of took off from there. He is completely nonverbal still. I know that one of the nice things about AAC speech devices in particular is that there is a fair amount of research showing that if a child is going to have some verbal language, um, speech devices typically only augment that. They only make it easier for the child because it's another way for them to learn the modeling and the language that uh, we try to teach them, but they can get that from a speech device. So basically, if you're a new parent um, or new parent to the augmentative communication world, 
using a speech device does not mean anybody has given up on your child speaking. Right. Um, in fact, a lot of times it can, like I've said, it, it research has shown that it helps the child learn to speak. In Alex's case, it did not. Um, but like I said before, I've made peace with that. And he is who he is. And he's wonderful the way he is, even without his language coming out of his mouth, his language happens to come out of an iPad. And it's it's worked. Um, he is not I don't know that people would say he's fluent. He's very, very capable of navigating his fingers just fly around the iPad. He knows where things are all the things that motivate him, whether it's items or food or people. He knows exactly where to find them. If we move them around just a little bit, we try not to, but if something changes a little bit, he still learns where it is. So he has some kind of, I don't know if you call it spatial memory or something. He has a good memory for how to find things. Now, finding them in the first place is kind of hard because he doesn't have the, I don't think, the language structure, proloquo and most speech programs, I think are built around some logical speech structure so that the placing of the words and the sounds on them makes some sense to the trained professionals that built it and implement it. But to him, he doesn't know that. He just remembers where things are. Mm -hmm. So having a good memory has helped him use it reasonably fluently, but he does not put sentences together with it. Um, he doesn't do things that are grammatically correct. Um, it's more kind of one and two word utterances, they call them in speech land. But he's very, very capable of finding what he wants to tell us certain things. So the one thing I wish he could do more, and it's my goal forever and ever and ever, is things like feelings, pain, oh, yeah. anything more intangible than cracker or a specific item or a toy or a person. Intangible stuff is just impossible. Yeah. I shouldn't say that. I, I hope it's still possible for him, but it's yeah. so hard. That's tough for anyone on the spectrum, <laughs> not not just the nonverbal. But yeah, I mean, I would give anything to know if Skylar's belly hurts or if he has a fever without me having to touch him and feel and like figure it out, so if he just doesn't hard. feel good. It's That's so the hard. biggest one. Yeah. Alex might, might be, which is why I, when I emailed you before about um, getting together today, Alex may be having some dental issues right now. And for the very, very first time in his life, a few days ago, he was pointing at his kind of chin and mouth area with me. Oh, he has never wow. done that before. So that, that's a good thing. One of my mm -hmm. friends was trying to convince me, yes, that's a good thing. But the bad thing is I have no idea if that means he has a toothache, if he just thinks it's interesting to touch his, there's something going on, um, but I just don't know. So I wish there was a way to take his device, for him to take his device and say tooth hurts or something like that, but mm -hmm. he does not have that. So that that's still missing, but yeah. I will not ever give up hope that somebody can show him, whether it's me or somebody, how to navigate at least to find the part of the body, which is a whole nother issue, the awareness of your own body to know that that is your tooth or that is your leg, or that is your, he's struggled with body parts his entire life too. Um, it's mm -hmm. just one of those, one of those things, the awareness just isn't, it doesn't come naturally. I'll say it that way. Well, I still find it so fascinating. And that's why you and I talked several months ago and I got Skylar um, an iPad and, and I went with the ProLoFo program and I was asking you a million questions <laughs> because I've never yeah, used AAC before. Questions. But it's so fascinating to me that kind of what you said earlier and what I've kind of uncovered with Skylar and his spelling recently, we just never know what they know. And it's, yeah. it's, it's so easy for us. And I, I always have said, I feel terrible now that I know what he's capable of that I did without even meaning to do it. And on purpose, I kind of diminished what he was capable of just because he's not presenting as if he knows how to do several things or how to tell me things. And because yeah. sign language and pecs and everything under the sun that we've tried to get some sort of communication means from him has failed us and it's just not working. So then to yeah. see something connect a little bit with him, I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, something is in there and he wants to talk to us. I just feel bad, you know, that it's been eight years does. and I'm like, they, you know. we It's just human nature. We, of course we feel bad, but we have to give ourselves the, the grace and the forgiveness to, um, I guess, understand. And I think if they could tell us, they would tell us, forgive yourselves moms, because we know we're challenging. <laughs> we, we would love to be less challenging than we are, but we, we can't help it. And yeah. 
that's, oh my that's goodness. how I've always viewed it. If I could put myself <laughs> in his head, what would he want to say? And I think sometimes he would want to say, thank you. And forgive me for being so challenging. And yeah. I love you, mom. And all the things that we would love to hear them say, but we have to believe that they do yeah. believe yeah. it. And they would want to tell us that. If they I would could. hope that one of the first things Skylar says to me is, I'm sorry, because that kid hurts yeah, me. Well, <laughs> he pulls my hair and hits me so much. I would hope that he doesn't mean it, but I, no, he, does, he doesn't. <laughs> he doesn't. He would, I know he would tell you he was sorry if he could. <laughs> I'll have I to get some of his that. friends who are verbal friends to communicate for me, like through him and like, this is what he means. <laughs> this is what he's really trying to tell you. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh my goodness. Well, yeah. um, I referenced in the but, beginning a little bit that that we have um, daughters this similar age too. Um, and um, yes. I just kind of wondered what Anna's relationship is like with Alex, if it's evolved over the years, like when they were little, did they play well together? And then they went through those kind of teen years where she played didn't want anything to do with him or if they, you know, just what is their relationship been like? Well, that's been really interesting. They're close in age together. They're 22 months apart. Mm -hmm. So they were kind of babies together because he certainly wasn't, ever really developing uh, after the physical kind of development type of milestones. So she was obviously talking before he was and he never did. So that was always a, so they were good playmates. Um, it was pretty straightforward back then. We had, they enjoyed some of the same books and TV programs and toys and uh, it was not too bad. I had a, a good double stroller. So we went on a lot of walks. Alex did not have behaviors per se yet. Mm -hmm. So we were able to kind of function somewhat normally as a mom with a, you know, three-year-old and a one-year-old and things like that. We, we did most of what we, I think, would have done if he had not had autism, but gradually, gradually, it started to become more of an issue. And I, I'd say probably all through elementary, it wasn't too bad. They did go to the same school, um, and that presented a few challenges just because the older a, a neurotypical kid gets, and certainly... It was a fairly large elementary school. So there was a lot of, um, I guess that was good in a way that they could be in different parts of the building. Most of the time, the wings of the building were such that they didn't necessarily see each other all the time, but everybody knew who Anna's brother was and mm -hmm. that he was the one that made the noise in the hallway. And he had a scooter that he rode around in the hallway and, you know, not too many kids do stuff like that. So everybody knew that all the other kids knew that her brother was the one that was um, doing this or doing that, or he loved elevators and there was an elevator at the school. And if he was eloping from the classroom, he was always running to the elevator and wanting to ride up and down it and laugh and lay down in the elevator. And so certainly some of that, as she got older, got to be more embarrassing than it was when she was younger. And certainly by late elementary, when she was say third grade and he was fifth grade, I think she was probably getting to the point where, oh, this brother thing is, isn't working out all that well. <laughs> anymore. And she didn't have the, uh, I'll just reference something now. She has a lot more, I guess, compassion, empathy mm -hmm. in more of an adult way now that she's 17 than she did at eight, for example. So at that point, she's still kind of mostly focused on herself and this slightly embarrassing thing that happened or that Alex did today at school that, and he actually pulled a fire alarm once. He's also had sort of an obsession with fire alarms over the years. <laughs> so all of those are not necessarily building real good ground for a, a strong sibling relationship when that's what's going on in your, your school where you spend mm -hmm. most of your time, but they, they did okay. Um, and we still were able to do some trips as a family before Alex got too kind of demanding and large to move around easily when we could still kind of put them both, not necessarily in strollers, those were not used anymore, but things like wagons or mm -hmm. just moving moving kids around a little, was a little easier when, when they were both younger, but certainly as they got older and by the time they both were late elementary approaching middle school age, that's when the challenges really started because his behaviors got really bad at the beginning of adolescence. That's a whole nother story. Uh, but, but by the point he was in sixth grade, she was still at elementary school, but he was only in sixth grade for half of the year. And then it was sort of a joint decision, but more of the school district's decision to place him outside of school because his behaviors were challenging to the point of not being able to be supported at school. Yep. And yep. just as a side note, he spent a year and a half out of the public school system and then attempted to rejoin then in eighth grade, but, but then Anna was in sixth grade. 
And if you can picture eighth grade, sixth grade, you've been there, you know what those grades are like, those ages yeah. are like. And he was in the major hair pulling stage <sighs> and she had long, pretty hair that Gosh. she was just starting to get concerned mm -hmm. about and figure out how to style it and cut it. And, and here's this crazy brother who is now quite a bit bigger than her and he's pulling her hair all the time. Yeah, they're and just like Skylar and Kendall. So that sad. was, it was just, uh, it was traumatic and mm -hmm. drop-offs at school, depending on who needed to go where for what time and who was riding the bus and who wasn't. Um, there was a fair amount of time when we were still me driving the van and those two in the car and then in the van somewhere. And it was just horrible. It was, it was really, really hard. And I don't blame her because she's screaming, he's pulling her hair and then that sets him off because then he gets a reaction, which is partially what he was yep. looking for in the first place. And it, it was not good. There was about a year when that was just really challenging. And he wasn't able to be in school very much, even that eighth grade year for that reason, the same reason the behaviors were still not his out of school placement was good and it worked on a lot of nice things with him, but he's still, I mean, he's only 14 at that point, right smack in the middle of adolescence. And it's not, it's, he's not there yet in terms of being able to be close enough to his sister and everybody else at school. So he didn't end up back in school full-time until sophomore year. Um, so that's kind of a side note, but at least in terms of Anna's relationship with him, it was middle school was the hardest by far. Mm -hmm. And then once she matured a little bit and then he got some of his behaviors a little more under control, we learned a lot more about how to work with him. Um, we tried some different meds at that point too. So by the time he was around 10th grade, they, I sort of, sort of started to see some progress in their, their relationship past just her not wanting really much of anything to do with him. A little bit more slowly, a little more empathy, a little more and I'm not blaming her because mm -hmm. who could blame her if this brother is pulling your hair and I mean, he's always done things that are challenging otherwise too. He does not like clothing a lot of times at home. So if she has a friend over and her brother is always a, a, a threat to remove his clothing at any given moment, that's not <laughs> particularly, not funny, but... <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's, you're a, I guess at that point, probably a 14 year old girl yourself and your 16 year old brother basically looks like an adult and he's a, yeah a running risk to remove his clothing at any given point running around the house. And that's just not good when you're a 14 year old girl. So that's, that's another evolution of all of this. But I think that really the turning point was him getting a little more under control behavior wise. He does not pull hair, do those types of things nearly as much as he did. It took a long time and it was really slow. Um, and it was a combination of strategies he learned, strategies we learned and meds. And we got to the point where it's not very common anymore. He's still, in fact, he did it once last week because I think I mentioned to you that he had an ear infection that mm -hmm. was unbeknownst to me until we had him at the doctor, but he was so frustrated and so probably in pain that she came and next, sat next to him on the couch and he would normally kind of reach his arm around and they'd do a little hug kind of a thing. But he was so annoyed at that point and his ear hurt, I have to presume that he just yanked her hair. And then all of a sudden it was a flashback to sixth and eighth grade again that, oh boy, he's not really doing this again, is he? But it was short-lived. I just asked her. And those are the hardest moments. Yeah, stand because, up and walk away and she did. Yeah. I mean, and I, it breaks my heart because like you said, you know, you have to come up with solutions. And when we're in the car, even now at 18 and 16, you know, Kendall's got her hoodie pulled up and she's leaned forward in the passenger yeah. seat when we're now, I mean, she yeah. can drive now, but always whenever she we're all together yeah. she has to ride like that and it, I hate that her life has to be so altered because of him and I know why she gets frustrated yes. and I try to explain and even hearing myself say it to her I'm like god this is stupid why am I even you know justifying his behavior I'm not but I kind of am by saying he's just frustrated and he doesn't yeah. know how to explain that to us so he's vicious sometimes and he's aggressive he does it to me too and she's like but that's not okay and I'm like I agree it's not what do you you know what do you I want know. me to do I just feel bad because I I don't want them to spend the day in their room and isolate until her brother goes to bed and then she comes out because she doesn't want to be around yeah. them I know it'll go yeah. get better so at the age but <laughs> it's just a lot it's so hard and there and there aren't a lot of real good solutions um like you said, sometimes separation helps. Uh, one thing Anna did 
gradually learned to do is not react as much um, to either calmly, as, as calmly as you can when your beautiful long hair is being yanked <laughs> by your strong brother, but um, somehow figure out a way to untangle your hair from his hand, stand up and walk away mm-hmm. without crying, screaming, yelling, any type of reaction that, like I said, he might be looking for. I don't mm-hmm. know. Because for him, it's partially sensory too. He's always been a big kind of touch and smell kind of kid. So certainly his sister's hair was interesting to touch and interesting to smell. And that's part of why he does it. But a lot of it was, like you say, too, frustration, anger, whatever he's feeling at the moment, he's kind of transferring over to her and she happens to be there. And if she's in the car or next to him on the couch, that's mm-hmm. who gets the brunt of it. It's it's hard. Um, I think slowly he outgrew some of that. And in fact, I know he did. And she also got to the point where she was a little more accepting and tolerant of it and willing to just kind of disengage than she used to be. Because like she, like you said about Kendall, I mean, Anna used to say the same things to me. It's not fair. I shouldn't have to do this. I shouldn't have to cover up my hair or wear a hoodie or hide or sit in the way back seat of the van. Because that's mm-hmm. what we used to do sometimes yep, too. through third row. Is separate <laughs> out as far as you can get somebody. Yeah. I bought, I don't want him in the front, still don't because he's not safe. Um, I don't want him pushing any of the, the buttons and Yep. trying to grab the steering wheel. I don't know that he would, but he certainly could. Skyler so he, could. he rides, <laughs> he rides in the back seat behind me and he probably yeah. always will. And the worst place for Anna then was in the passenger seat next to me. Cause then he had a perfect direct yep. right arm out to grab hair in front passenger seats. And that happened so many times we lost count. So, and then, but now I think it's a progression. Now there's a lot of growth on both of their parts to say that, um, they can coexist. And she's gotten to the point where I'm comfortable. I think you've mentioned this about Kendall and Skylar too, leaving them together brief periods of time to she or you don't do that yet. Um, I mean, the only time she will like quote unquote watch him is watch when he's already her, yeah. in bed. Okay. <laughs> she's okay. like, you guys better hurry. <laughs> Get yeah, back well, here. I started with that too, but it <laughs> depending on what kind of mood or phase he's in, because he mm-hmm. goes through lots of ups and downs. There's so many. There yeah. are some days when he's just the calmest, happiest kid ever. And then some days when it's just like the old days when he's aggressive and unhappy and some of that. So on a calm, happy day, I am very comfortable leaving them alone for a short time. Yeah. Or, you know, do something that can't involve Alex. I'm comfortable with that. And, and she knows um, that she can call me if there's anything that happens. He also really likes car rides. And since she got her license last year, that's been kind of a built-in way for them to, first of all, hang out and then separately, secondly, do something that he enjoys together. So they will take short drives around town. Sometimes when I need to do something, she'll take him for a drive. Tomorrow we have a, a time set up that I have to bring our other laptop in to have it dropped off at the Geek Squad. So she's already planning on taking Alex for a drive so I can go in and do that at the designated time. So it, it does help at, at that moment, but certainly I, I wouldn't try anything aggressive when, when he's in one of his more aggressive, angry type phases. He goes through phases for days or weeks at a time when he'll be one way and then he'll kind of flip out of it and then he'll be another way. Mm-hmm. So I certainly don't um, put any either of them at risk if he's in one of the phases that are more challenging. But for the most part, they've grown to the point where she's grown up to the point where I now can see some sort of glimmer of a future where she might be willing to be some sort of a caretaker a little bit for him, which may segue into another well, yeah, and that's discussion actually, topic. It's a perfect segue because I was going to ask you, obviously with Skylar just turning 18, um, at the airing of this episode, um, I, you know, I did the guardianship process, um, the social security stuff. And I know you and I've talked at length about all of that, but the one thing that I, um, I kind of broached it very briefly with Kendall and I just asked her point blank, like, do, you know, do you know when you, do you feel comfortable talking about the future at all? And she's like, nope, I don't want to talk about anything. And I'm like, okay, I just, I don't, I don't feel like I um, am pushing the envelope if I bring it up. And if she says no, I shut it down and I don't talk about it again. But I feel like if I don't at least broach the topic with her, she'll never come to me willingly and say, I want to talk about my brother in the future. So I just, I feel yeah. like I'm going to keep asking as she grows and develops and gets her own life. And then maybe she'll say, okay, let's sit down and talk about it. And I'm just kind of yeah. planning around her right now. 
Yeah. I, you know, I think, I don't know that there's a right and a wrong because every family and every situation is different, but I guess my two cents worth is that's probably a good thing to do, the right thing to do. If she feels, if and when she feels like it's the right time to start having some of those discussions, it seems like to me anyway, it's better off doing it at a little bit at a time rather than all of a sudden in five years saying, whoa, we really need you to do this now, but we've never even talked about it before. Yeah. So in this case, you'll have brought a few things up or she's shared a few things with you over the years that lead you more gradually to the point where she thinks either, yes, I can do more now or no, I'm not ready to, or something else has changed mm -hmm. in your lives or in, in theirs. And maybe it's, it's a different scenario then, but I think over time is probably the best way to do that. And Grab the moments, as you know, with a teenage girl anyway, yeah, you grab the moments where it, <laughs> it looks like they really want to talk about something and, and go with it, mm -hmm. just like any other topic we talk about with our, our daughters. But it it might happen easier than you think. It's hard to know because, mm -hmm. like I said, everybody's different, but you might be very encouraged to see some signs that she might be more willing person participant in that whole process as the the process moves along for you. And, and to be honest, it's all very intimidating because they're, they're learning how to figure out what they want in the world yeah. too, much yeah. less having to figure out how does my severely disabled brother fit into my world? Do I want to go to college? What do I want to do? Um, where do I want to go to college? Uh, all the stuff that they're trying to navigate. And Anna just took the ACT yesterday. So that was one of those next steps. Mm -hmm. It's scary for the parents yep. to figure out that yep. Yeah, we're going to be moving towards that and you don't have it with the first child. So it's kind of like you and I are first time parents of potential college going students, even though we have the older siblings mm -hmm. that um, haven't had that and won't have that. Uh, it's it's different. And that's where the guilt comes. Not in. a lot of people can is not a lot of people can relate to that. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's like the guilt comes in for me when I'm thinking about the future. And even when I feel like I need to broach that with her, because I feel like she kind of got robbed a childhood. And then I don't yeah, want to then take that next level with her and like steal this college experience and make her think about more adult things like her brother's future when she's just, mm -hmm. you know, getting into her own and her own life. So I don't Absolutely. know. Absolutely. It seems like a more just kind of let it happen type mm -hmm. approach is yeah. what I've been doing. And I don't know that that's the right way, but I, I think it'll it'll just turn out the way it turns out. But the bottom line is we had to do, as you've had to do, the legal and financial and step practical steps towards getting our now adult sons into the systems and the mm -hmm. applications and all the stuff that they need to be taken care of appropriately now that they're legal adults who would otherwise be expected to make their own decisions and manage their own money and all the things that they most likely will not be able to do. So I kind of had to separate all that out and take little bits at a time to get through it. Cause it's, it's very hard. All of those steps to really admitting that, yeah, this, this is kind of forever mm -hmm. and it's always going to be forever, you, you know, with any of our kids, but it's a different kind of forever. When you realize that every single thing that he will ever need will have to be set up, managed, monitored, whatever the word is by somebody mm -hmm. that has to hopefully have his best interests in mind. And of course, that's the thing we want to live forever and we won't have <laughs> yes. A, a, yes. a process. <laughs> well, we never lose hope. I mean, it's, I don't ever want anyone to hear parents with older children talk about these futures and, and this kind of thing and, and lose hope, but it, it's just, a, oh, it's no, just a never. different it's just a different feeling, I guess, is how I can explain it. When your child is, is five, six, seven, and we're all given those horrible timelines, like they should be doing this by this age and whatever. Yeah. Um, and I get all of that and not listening to any of that. But then when you get to this stage where you have to make a legal decision, like, okay, I, I would have hoped that by now he would be able to speak a little bit for his, himself and be able to make decisions um, and at least you know, li maybe live with us forever, but at least have his own little wing in our basement and cook a few things for yeah. himself and all of that. And it's so final when the judge says, oh, hey, you're making the decisions for the remainder of his life. That's yes. just, it's just sad to me. I lost a little bit of hope that he might be able to care for himself in some independent way. Not that I'm ever going to give up on him. He's still going to, you know, develop and grow. Oh, but no. It's just, 
which is just the finalization of that, I guess. It's just got me. Yeah, it, it's hard, but I think that's where we, we come back to all of the things that this was, I think, something we were going to talk briefly about too. All the things that bring them and us joy, mm -hmm. um, finding even if he is not going to be able to cook his own meals, manage his own money, there are so many things, and this is just a kind of a philosophy of life, but so many things he can do that he enjoys doing. Um, they're different from other 19-year-old young men, but they're things that he can still get out of life and that I can still get out of life with him, um, even though they're not the same as I ever wanted and ever expected and asked for and all that stuff. So you, you kind of just have to draw back to all the things that really bring you and him joy in your lives together as parents, as families, and, and try to focus on those. And mm -hmm. I think you asked too, what, what was, what are the most important things to Alex in his life? And honestly, for him, it's people. Oh, he loves nice. the people in his life that whether it's school or elsewhere, family members, he really has a strong relationship with my elderly parents, which is kind of interesting oh, that has progressed ever since he was little. He still talks about them on his iPad all the time, wants to see them whenever he can. So kind of focus on all of that, all the things that we can still do rather than the things we can't mm -hmm. and that he can't. And I guess that's the, the, the hard thing is I, the, in the paperwork, all the guardianship, the SSI, the special needs trust, all that stuff. Once you get past all the drudgery of doing that, <laughs> yes. for the most part, it just, it, it can just go in a file cabinet yep. and day to day. I very, very rarely need to go into that file cabinet to do anything. Right. It's all there when, or if somebody needs it. Um, now, I have not done a letter of intent. That would be something I I'm slowly working do. on that. I, I just, it, that one I is have, really upsetting to me. I can't, I just can't get myself to I do it. I have not put fingers to keyboard or pencil to paper to do that That's yet. That's the most important but one, I think, we need to do. I know it is. I know. <laughs> it's so hard. Mm -hmm. um, but the rest of the paperwork is done and day to day, it really doesn't affect our lives. Mm -hmm. So I would just say kind of everybody, me included, I have to remind myself of every somewhat sleepless night and morning when I say, okay, that, that was really hard. And it's, it's, there's gotta be a way to find joy in, in life with him, the way he is, Yeah, accept him, love him the way he is. And not I always want him to do better and do more and learn, but also at the same time, accept him the way he is. And that's the hard part. It is, but it's <laughs> neat. Nice. They, they teach us to appreciate the littlest things. There are things yeah, that absolutely. I giggle about that are so like dumb and whatever, but they're funny. And no. he just, the things that make him light up, it's just, it's hilarious yes. because I think yes. most people would walk past and just totally disregard, not even notice. And so it makes us slow down a little bit. A whole nother way of living um, to <clears throat> yeah. have a different connection with your child than you ever thought you would, but um, to appreciate what they appreciate in life mm -hmm. is really where, where it's at. Um, kind of meeting them where they're at yep. and loving them the way they are, but also at the same time, pushing them. That's, that's kind of what it all boils down to, to me. Well, that's such, I mean, you're always so positive every time I talk to you anyway, so <laughs> I'm not surprised, but um, you know, that kind of helped answer my last question as we wrap up, you know, what advice you would give to your younger self. And, it, and maybe it's just that, that you said, you know, just kind of meeting them where they are, giving yourself some grace to just travel the journey along with them. Is there anything else that you would you know, tell your younger self or, um, you know, potentially somebody that's just getting started on their autism journey with their children um, that they should yeah. kind of think about? You no, know, the one, the one thing that strikes me that I don't think we've really hit on too much, but it's, it's kind of a global concept too, is there really aren't, as all of us think back, even though the people that are kind of new to the journey, they've probably already tried some things and felt like things were failures. One of the things that I would really suggest and that I've learned over the years is anything that you would consider a failure um, as an autism parent um, or really anybody trying to teach a child with autism something is that if you're trying a toy or a therapy or a food or a, anything, an activity, and it didn't go very well or it didn't work out the way you thought it would, really, really do your best not to view it as a failure, but as a learning opportunity because Number one, it may not just be the right thing for your child. Not every child responds the same way to the same therapies, interventions, activities, anything like that. And then secondly, it may be something that they're just not ready for. If you 
try something and it doesn't quite work at age four, well, try it again maybe at age eight and possibly it will uh, be more successful then, or maybe it won't and it just wasn't the right thing for you anyway. Um, everybody's heard about things like dietary interventions mm -hmm. and lots of different kinds of therapies and lots of kind of more the biomedical, um, non-traditional type things. We've tried a lot and a lot of what I would think back in my mind then were failures. I've learned over the years to appreciate them more as learning opportunities to say, okay, that really wasn't something that helped Alex, but in the process of doing that particular thing or trying it, I learned something else or met a different person mm -hmm. who introduced me to something else. It's kind of like chaining or linking up experiences and people in your lives to things that you didn't necessarily intend when you started off an activity or a project or something. Yeah. Um, you never, you never quite know where something's going to lead, I guess is how I'll sum it up. You have a lot of things that present themselves as opportunities and try not to think of anything as a failure if it didn't turn out the way quite you wanted it to, because there's a lot of opportunities that can come out of something you perceive as a failure. That's perfect. Those are my two mantras in life actually combined. Trust your gut and follow the breadcrumbs. <laughs> like I've, I've had to, wonderful. Like, I have to write that on my walls and put it everywhere because I try. No, nope. I try. I'm, I'm a big believer in that too. You just have to. Mm -hmm. And and similarly, you have to laugh sometimes too when something isn't going well or if it's just kind of step back and see how comical a situation really was. Yep. And you didn't think that at the time or in the moment, but certainly if you step back, it, it can be, and you have to laugh because that's the only way to get through a lot of our situations that we find ourselves Amen. in. Amen. <laughs> that's true. This is not for the weak. <laughs> it is not. Well, we didn't necessarily choose it, but here we are yep. and it's our lives and we're going to make the most of them. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I appreciate you sharing your life with everybody and being so open and honest about your experiences, these 19 years of autism <laughs> on this journey. And I appreciate your friendship. Uh, so thank you so much for being a guest today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Living the Sky Life and we'll tune in for the next episode coming soon. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the Living the Sky Life podcast within Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play so you'll receive alerts when new episodes are released. Subscribing is the best way to ensure you don't miss a single episode. If you like what you hear, be sure to select the five-star rating, provide feedback, and share living the sky life with others. Thanks again for listening.